I read this week about an army officer who consulted a well-known Christian doctor because he was very unhappy in life and he had a lot of aches and pains in his body as well as in his mind. Although this man had grown up in his younger years in a Christian environment, along the way he had laid aside his roots and his moral restraint and lived a life of self-indulgent sin. It took its toll on him and the harmful effects of that kind of wanton living were clearly evident to the godly physician. So the godly doctor sat down and he said, I'm going to write out a prescription for you. If you will follow this exactly, you will become a happy, healthy man, physically and mentally. And this was the prescription that he wrote out for him. He said, to begin with, I want you to take a portion of scripture three times daily from the books of the law and the Psalms and the prophets in the Bible until you are thoroughly convinced of your sin and your utter condemnation before God. When this has had its desired effect, he said, then I want you to go back to the Bible, find the words of Christ inviting you to be forgiven of your sins and to have new life in him and accept his offer. Receive him as your Lord and Savior and receive his forgiveness. And this will result in a wonderful spiritual change. He said, after your conversion, then I want you to turn your attention to the book of Acts and to the epistles, where you will learn how to enjoy a full life right now in this world Finally, when you come to the book of Revelation, he said, it will show you your glorious future in heaven where you will find that you will need no more prescriptions like this. The man took the prescription. He followed it out to the detail. He became born again. He found a new life. He got rid of the pain in his mind and the pain in his body as well because so many of the pains in his body were simply a reflection of the agony of his soul. Nothing like a good spiritual prescription. Peter here does effectively that for us. He gives us a prescription for holiness in the Christian life. And I want you to look at it with me as we read through verses 13 down to 16. He says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now, as I look at this prescription for holiness, there's basically three things that stand out to me very clearly. The first is that to become holy, you must prepare yourself. So the first is our preparation for holiness. Secondly is that holiness involves obedience to God. So the second thing is our obedience and holiness. And the third is there must be a driving reason or I won't do it and I won't care. So I must be persuaded that the reason is good enough. So the reason for our holiness is found here in these verses as well. Preparation, our obedience, and our reason for holiness. Let's begin with our preparation. Peter says in verse 13, this is how it all begins. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. 
and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first thing Peter tells us here is that if you're going to be holy, it begins with the preparation of your mind, the preparation of your mind to be used by God. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. What that means effectively is get your mind ready for action. As you read this, as you think about it, your response would be to go away and to get your mind ready for action. That's the idea conveyed here when it says, gird up the loins of your mind. If you have a New King James, that's what it says. If you have an NIV, it says, prepare your minds for action. But that's the idea. Anytime you find in the Bible the idea of girding up your loins, it's something that was very common to the people at the time of this writing. It's the idea that in those days the men dressed a little different than we did. They wore, rather than pants as we do now, they wore these long robes. If they were to do any kind of activity that was strenuous, whether it be running or fighting or whatever, to prepare themselves for that activity, that action, they would have to pull the robe up and take a belt and gird themselves about to tie the robe up, to tie the tunic up. Otherwise, if you went off running, you would trip and fall. If you went off fighting, you would trip and fall. And thus, you had to gird up your loins before you could do anything like that. That's why when you read in the Old Testament, there was a time when Elijah had to do a little running. And it says in 1 Kings 18.46, Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins, and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So girding up the loins. I mean, you might get the picture of somebody holding their stomach like this, you know. Gird up the loins of your mind, you know. You might get a picture of somebody holding their stomach. No, it's the idea of pulling up your robe around you to get ready for action. God applies that to the mind long before Peter. In Job 38.3, in the King James, God is speaking to Job and he says this, Gird up now your loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and I want you to answer me. In other words, Job, get your mind ready for action, and the action is going to be interaction with me. Get ready. You see it again on the night of the Passover in Exodus. They are getting ready to eat the Passover supper, the Passover lamb. And then they're going to leave in the morning, leave Egypt and go out toward the new promised land. And God says to them, and thus shall you eat it with your belt on your waist and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You will eat it in haste, the girding up of the loins. In Ephesians chapter 6, when you deal with the armor of God, do you know what the first thing you do is to put on the armor? You put on the what? The belt of truth. You gird up your mind with the truth of God. You get ready in your mind for action. I think this is critical for a number of reasons. One that's on my heart is that getting your mind ready involves thinking. It involves thinking about your life. It involves thinking about your weaknesses and your strength. You're getting ready to go forward, ready for battle, ready for difficulty with the intention of surviving the difficulty and coming out victorious. One of the things that often happens when we don't gird up our minds is that we tend to become slack 
and unobservant in areas that are critical. By that I mean this. Often we keep an eye on our weaknesses as Christians, but what we fail to really guard is our strengths. And when you do not guard your strength, it can become a great weakness in your life. Listen to the words of Oswald Chambers. He comments on the tendency of men and women to lose their to lose major personal battles, not, he says, at the point of their weaknesses, but strangely enough, at the points of their perceived strengths. He wrote, the Bible characters never fell on their weak points, but on their strong ones. Then he said this, unguarded strength is double weakness. Now that's something you're going to have to tuck away and think about later after you leave here. But unguarded strength becomes double weakness. And the way that we can think through such a reality as that and avoid the major personal defeats is by girding up the lines of our mind and thinking through our life. Then he says to get your mind sober. First, get your mind ready for action. Secondly, get your mind sober. Look at verse 13. Gird up the lines of your mind and be sober. What does that mean, to be sober? It's the idea of cleansing your mind from intoxicating influences. You hear the word sober, I hear it, I immediately think of drunkenness. Sober is the opposite of drunkenness. How many here were ever drunk before, wait? Man, are you guys eager? Come up here, let me smell your breath. How many of you were ever drunk before you became a Christian? It's okay to admit it now. Isn't that amazing? Most of us. I'll just throw my hand in there too. There was a lot of nights on Southern Comfort that took me a lot farther south than I wanted to go. <laughs> so, drunkenness. It's the idea of being intoxicated under the influence of something else. When he talks about a sober mind, he's saying, you've got to get your mind ready for action. To do that, you've got to free your mind, cleanse it from intoxicating influences. And that isn't always just alcohol. We're all different. And we have different bents. And thus, there are different things that intoxicate each one of us. We have to free our minds from these intoxicating influences. And truthfully, the world is full of them today. They are all around us. Well, the question comes, how do you do that? What's well, implied in the word sober? You begin by becoming serious about the things of God. To be serious-minded about the things of God. I like what D.L. Moody said once. He said, Never think that Jesus ever commanded a trifle, nor dare to trifle with anything he has commanded. Do you understand what he's talking about there? Some of you are thinking of dessert right now, trifle. <laughs> I never heard of trifle till I went to England, then I've had it each time, trifle. But that's not what Moody's talking about. A trifle is something that you take lightly, something not important. He says, never think that Jesus ever commanded something that wasn't important. Never a trifle. He says, nor dare to ever trifle with anything he has commanded. That's being serious-minded. You wonder, I've pointed this out before, but you, you have to wonder what made these men and women of influence so influential in the Christian life whose names we know to this day. 
There's always a reason, and it's always on the inside. One thing we find out about Moody now is that he was very serious about the things of God. So that's a way of cleansing your mind. I think it starts there. Another way is by then going on to fill it with the things of God. To fill it with the things of God. You become serious about the things of God, but then you go on to fill your mind with the things of God. I think the best way to have a clean mind, and I've thought about this for years, I've talked about it endlessly with other human beings that battle with this, and uh, the question always comes back around to the same thing. I mean, we could have this message, and if I didn't deal with this, someone would come up and say, fine, we talked about holiness, but what do I do about my mind? Peter says, you work on making your mind sober. That's what you do about it. And the way you do that is you fill your mind with the things of God. That's the best way to have a, a clean mind. In other words, I think the only way to move toward a mind free from the intoxication of this world is to dedicate your mind to the use of God's kingdom. Dedicate your mind for the furtherance of God's kingdom. See, whatever your all-consuming passion is, that's going to dominate your mind. It will dominate your mind because you will, you will feed that passion. You will cultivate toward that passion. So by filling your mind with the things of God, if you dedicate your mind to the use of the kingdom, to advance the kingdom, in other words, you wake up in the morning, why am I alive? Because Jesus has left me here to advance his kingdom. Maybe it's on your job as a computer worker. Maybe it's over at the Shell gas station. Maybe it's at the car wash. Maybe it's being a doctor, whatever. But at your post in life, if you will be aware of the fact that you are dedicating your mind to the furtherance of God's kingdom, then you will feed that passion. I remember in the back of a restaurant supply shop in Eugene, Oregon, my job was to stand all day in a back room. That was my job. And I stood there with a mask on to protect my eyes from flying metal because in reality my job was grinding aluminum pots that they use at German restaurants to serve soup in so the soup would look like it was being served in some old, very, you know, um, culturally relevant German environment. So my deal was to grind out the inside of these pots which are all rough so they'd be smooth on the inside but still rough and old looking on the outside. And I did that all day long, sometimes 12 hours a day. And all I did was one pot after the next. Now you might say, what kind of meaning could you find in a job like that, shut up in a back room grinding pots with earplugs in my ears and a mask on my face not, face, not dealing with any human beings at all? The meaning was this. Before I got to the job, I stopped at the lo local coffee shop and I studied the Bible. And then when I put on my mask and stuck in my earplugs and turned on the big machine for the rest of the day while grinding pots, I thought back through what I had studied and worked through issues of theology, particularly at that time was the book of Hebrews. And God used that time to equip me for what was coming next. Always there's meaning, you see. But if your mind isn't dedicated to the furtherance of the kingdom of God, then you're not going to use it for that. The only way to take it captive and to keep it clean and to free it up is to give it to him and then to fill it with the things of him. You know why? Eventually, 
we have to all realize that there's no such thing as an unoccupied mind. Have you learned that yet? There's no such thing as an unoccupied mind. Either I occupy my mind with good thoughts, whatsoever is good, lovely, pure, you know, Paul lists off all those things in Philippians. Either I occupy my mind with good thoughts, or guess what? The devil will fill my mind with evil thoughts. And I'm well acquainted with that, and so are you. So I either occupy my mind with good thoughts, fill my mind with the things of God, or the devil will fill it with his things. But in reality, there's no such thing as an unoccupied mind. Now, some of you could fool us. But in reality, there's no such thing as an unoccupied mind. So we get a hold of the process, we get ready, we take control. There's a control involved here. And along the way, in filling our minds with the things of God, that involves opening our minds up to His greatness, opening our minds out, coming to God in expectancy, coming to His Word in expectancy to see the great things of God. Years ago, Lord Chesterfield said that a weak mind is like a microscope that magnifies trifling things but cannot receive great ones. Let me give that to you again. What is a weak mind? A weak mind is like a microscope that magnifies trifling things, but cannot receive great ones. If we're to fill our minds with the things of God effectively, we have to open them. Too often we as Christians get so narrow and so specific on little details, often trifling details when compared with the glories of God, that we cannot see the glories of God. It, and in the end, you become a mini-mind. A mini-mind. Now, I'm going to give you an assignment. Don't do it now. We don't want any fistfights breaking out. But after you leave here today, you find someone in your life that you know loves you with an unconditional love. And ask that person if they think you're a mini-mind or not. Say to them, do you think I have this microscopic mind that is always amplifying trifles to the point that I cannot see the great things of God? Now you've got to be courageous and you have to be loving. And don't be one of these people that says, I want your criticism, I want your criticism, I want it, I want it. And then when they give it to you, how dare you? You know that kind of thing. I say it all the time. I've done it myself. Oh, please tell me the truth. And then they tell me the truth. I hate you. I'm never going to talk to you again. You got to be ready for the answer that says you are the definition of the mini mind. You have to be ready. Then go to God and say, Oh God in heaven, by the power of your spirit, open my mind, get my eyes off these little tiny trivialities and let me behold your glories. And then your mind will be ready to be used of God. Then it will begin to fill with the great things of God. Could you turn in your Bible to Psalm 119? To verse 100. The psalmist, we really see him doing this. There's so much to learn and to understand about God. And you can become so preoccupied with him that your mind becomes free from the intoxicating preoccupation of the things of the world because in the end, 
in a positive, glorious way, he and his truth and his glory is the most intoxicating thing known to the human mind and heart because we were created in his image to know him. So, Psalm 119, verse 100. The psalmist says, I understand more than the ancients. Quite a bold statement, isn't it? Because I keep your precepts. Oh, I see why. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. Do you realize God wants to personally aid you in the process of filling your mind with the things of him? You yourself have taught me, and it's all from the word you see. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Here's all the enlightenment. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Oh God, you have filled my life with your glories and your truth. That is how you cleanse your mind from intoxicating influences of the world. You become serious about the things of God. You fill your mind with the things of God. And now you can go back to First Peter. Let me take you just a little farther. And then you are ready to truly use your mind to serve God, to truly get involved day by day in using your mind to serve God. What that means then is an ongoing cultivation of your mind in kingdom realities, kingdom truths. You see, if you don't cultivate your mind, if you just let it go, it won't be fit for the master's use. How many here have ever had a garden? Any gardeners in our midst today? Several over here, over here, the Lord sees that hand, over here. <laughs> I've had many gardens in my life, some big, some small, big acres up in Oregon, and I remember one in particular, it was in Fountain Valley. We got an apartment in Fountain Valley, and uh, Lori Beth was born, she wasn't very old, so here we are in our apartment in Fountain Valley, we've got our newborn little girl, and at the back of the apartment, you know the scene, there was this little patio area with a microscopic section of grass. You know that whole scene? And you, you come out there the first day, you're so excited, look and land on top of everything else, you know. I'll never forget, it was about 10 by 15, this area, feet. And my dad came over one day, and uh, he has kind of a warped sense of humor. And now you know how I got mine. But he came over, and here's Lori Beth. She's kind of cruising around in her little walker thing, you know, just bumping into things. And she came cruising out into this area. And he's standing there looking at this little area, and he turned to my daughter, and he goes, Yeah, kid, just think. One day, all this land is going to be yours. <laughs> it was a very small area. Anyway, I tore out the grass and I put in a garden. I planted a garden. I had these gigantic eggplants, hot peppers. I mean, the most wonderful beefsteak tomatoes you've ever seen in your life. It was glorious. And then I got preoccupied with other things. One day, after a long time, and I went out there and there was these gigantic thorny thistle plants had grown up and all these weeds that were higher than the, the plants themselves and now the tomatoes were rotting and there were flies and worms and it was just the awful mess you could ever imagine. 
Well, the reality is, is that when a saint, a Christian, lets his or her mind alone and you don't cultivate it, it becomes a place of rubbish that the devil uses for his purposes. So we give our minds to God. We gird up the loins of our mind. We become sober, serious-minded about the things of God, and we begin to let our minds be used for God's kingdom day by day. And as a result, we have cultivated, sharp-thinking minds. I personally believe that of all people in the world, Christians should be the greatest thinkers. Because God made your mind. The average human being uses less than 10% of their mind, probably going down in the 90s. Less than 10%. So we have so much given to us in our minds if we will yield them to the Holy Spirit, to the truth of God, and the direction of God, and the passion of His kingdom, think of the potential. Anybody here ever heard of Ralph Waldo Emerson? You know his name because he was a thinker, right? I was struck by something he said this week. He said, I read it, he said, A chief event of life is the day in which we have encountered a mind that startled us. I like that. A chief event in your life is a day when you have encountered a mind that startles you. How often do you encounter minds like that today in the Christian world? How often do you bump into somebody who has a mind so girded up, so alert, so ready for action, so cultivated that you're startled to encounter that mind? And when you're all done, you go away and you remain startled and it becomes a landmark day in your life because you've met a mind unlike the common minds you meet. I fear that in our day there are few Christian thinkers. There are not many minds that would startle us. But what a wonderful goal to have. To have a mind that becomes startling with the truth and the glories of God. It all begins with girding up the loins of your mind and being sober. And then you go on from there and you fix your hope on the grace of God. You get your mind ready to be used by God, then you fix your hope on the grace of God. Look at 1 Peter 1.13 again. He says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A fixed hope is a powerful dynamic in your life. In fact, if you don't have hope, you're not going anywhere. You become hopeless. The dynamic that you fix your hope on here is the grace of God. Do you see that? Brought to you the revelation of Jesus Christ. NIV says, set your hope fully. New King James says, rest your hope fully. New American Standard says, fix your hope completely. It's a kind of a thing where you find this hope and you fix yourself on it for the rest of your life. And the, the thing that is so blessed to me to contemplate is that it's a hope of the grace that will be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in this passage, Peter's talking about not just the revelation of Christ, his second coming for you in the rapture at your death or when he returns to the earth, but specifically this reality. Look at this. He says, rest your hope fully on the grace, notice, that is to be, what does it say? Brought to you. That is amazing to me. 
at the end of my life or at the rapture, whenever I go to face Christ, you know what he's going to do first off? He's going to bring grace to me. That is absolutely liberating, invigorating. It's, it's the kind of a thing that when you have your hope fixed on this reality at the end of your life, the first thing Jesus is going to do is bring you grace. My thought is, hold it. You've already done that. I came as a sinner, wretched, a drunk, you know, all those things. You gave me grace. That's why I have a new life. Now, you mean there's a whole second portion coming? I mean, I'm going up to a whole new level? Yes. The revelation of Christ to you, when you stand before him, he's going to bring grace to you. Jeremy Collier once said that hope is a vigorous principle. It sets the head to work and it animates a man to do his utmost. May I say that this kind of hope of grace being brought to you will fully animate you. You know what it does for you? It comforts you. It comforts you. Because here you're, you're moving now. You have a direction. You know where you're going. You're living for Christ. But you're living constantly with this in mind. At the end of my life, I'm going to be welcomed into the arms of God in grace. And what happens then is it comforts you now. You know why? Because it comforts you in spite of your failures to know that in spite of all your failures, you're going to end well because you're going to end in grace. I don't know how that strikes you, but it's very important to me. Because this is a passage that calls me to holiness. And as I contemplate it, I think immediately, there will be failures. <laughs> Listen, Lord, this is Danny you're talking to. I know there's going to be failures along the way, but oh God, you're telling me, in spite of the failures, I'll be received in grace. All of a sudden, I'm ready to go, Lord. All of a sudden, I feel like this is something I can respond to. You see, have you ever been to a restaurant that's being remodeled? Anybody here? You go to the restaurant, you walk up, it's your favorite place, you're all excited, and all of a sudden you see it's dusty, there's trucks laying around, there's trash bins outside. Oh no, Martha, look! Dust and dirt at our favorite restaurant. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. No, dear, be encouraged. They're open. See the sign? It says, pardon our dust. We're under construction. And we're not quite done yet. Come on, they're open. And so you go in. We were in London and I wanted Indian food. What better place to have it? You know, they ruled India for so long. So you have all these Indians walking around that were given British citizenship. So great Indian food, the real thing. So I said, we've got to have it. Let's go. I hunted all around, found the right place. This is the place. So we walked there and it was raining, but it was worth it. So we got down, we come around the corner. Oh, no. Look at the dirt. Look at the dust. There's trash bins. They're all, they're not open. No, look. And there was a sign that said, pardon our dust. We're under construction and we're not finished yet, but we're open and we're happy to serve you. We went in, the walls were bare. I had imagined tapestry and elephants and Ravi Shankar music, you know, the full vibe. So we sat down and I was disturbed, but I was happy. There was white tablecloths, thought it was classy after all. And then the guy comes up and he says, Would you like some vegetables with your dinner? And I said, Vegetables? This is a real Indian place. I like it. This is, I think I'm getting the vibe. But the point was this, when we were all done, the food was fabulous. The best ever. Talking to these waiters that had just moved from India. I mean, you had the feeling you were there. Never mind the pale walls. 
the stucco. I mean, the fact that there were no tapestries, no umbrella, but there was Ravi Shankar music. It was so good when we got done, we left, and I thought, you know, surely there's a sermon illustration in here somewhere. <laughs> I found a spot for it. <laughs> See, the reality is, there's going to be grace brought to us at the end. We're going to strive for holiness as He is holy. That's the highest standard. And yet we're going to fall. We're going to fail. The only way I can keep striving for that and keep answering the call of this text is if I know that at the end, no matter how many times I fail, grace is going to be brought to me. I will have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. And thus I am comforted. And not only that, I'm given confidence. You know why? Because it tells me this. If he's planning on receiving me with grace, he anticipates my failures. He calls me anyhow. Thus, I am called to do what I can do in spite of my weaknesses that I have particularly and uniquely as a human being. And so are you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows that you are dust. The Psalms say so. And yet he's going to receive you with grace. May I encourage you in this? The passage is calling every person in this building with all your secret failures, with all your human frailties, and every human has them, to get up and answer this call because you are dealt with by God in grace and love. And he has chosen to use imperfect human beings and to grace them at the end of their life, which means he will grace you before you ever get there. Paul said that since God has given up his son to die for us, Will he not freely with him now give us all things? Freely because it's graciously, all because we need all the help we can get, and all the help is there. Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? And then he went on to say, our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but it is of God, it is of Christ. And in my weakness, he's made strong. So there's comfort and confidence here, knowing that this is a call that begins and ends with a focus on grace. So the preparation for holiness and then the obedience. Go to verse 14 of 1 Peter. He says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. All. That's pretty broad, isn't it? In other words, this is for your whole life. Every compartment, all of it. Now, that's a pretty broad order. It is a, a command. What does Peter tell us to help us with this, with our obedience? The first thing is he says, you need to remember your former inability and you'll be encouraged. He says, look, not conforming yourselves to, what does it say? Your former lusts, as in your ignorance. In other words, he's saying, remember your former inability before you were converted. You were truly hopeless in every way. Ignorant of God, his power, his love, his freedom. Ignorant of all of that and then because of that. Hopelessly under the domination of sin. Hopelessly. So that your life outside of Christ is shaped by sin. You become the product of the sins of your life. Now Peter says, you're not like that anymore. He says, former. It's past tense. The implication is, look at the inability of your former life. And then move to contemplate 
the capability of your new life in Christ. And then you'll be in the right frame of mind to move forward into holiness. You're not fashioning yourself according to your former lusts. You were ignorant then. You were blind in every way. You've given all that up, that way of living. You know what your mind does immediately, your heart, when you read something like this? The first thing you think of, what do I have to give up if I'm going to answer this today? God, what is in my life I'm going to have to give up? Then it's followed by another question. Do I want to give that up? Let me say this. If you think that God's call to holiness in your life is going to destroy some part of your life, destroy some part of your pleasure, you need to realize this. The only thing that is going to be destroyed in your life by sanctification is the things that are destroying you. The only things that will be destroyed in your life by holiness, by sanctification, are the things that are destroying you. Therefore, they certainly need to be given up. So it's a former thing. You look at your past life and you move in a new direction now in this life. And here's the encouraging thing. He calls us children. The moment you become God's child, the moment that God declares a man righteous, he immediately goes about to make him practically righteous as well as positionally. So that what happens is this. The reason you are capable of all of this is because, number one, you're willing. And if you're born again and you are God's child, you are willing. You're willing because the moment you are born again into a relationship with God, from the very first moment, there's a cry that begins to gush from your heart. Do you know what it is? Abba, Father. Paul calls it in Romans. It is the deepest, most profound cry that ever comes from the human heart. It's the cry of, God, you're my Father, I'm finally joined to you. Oh, and it's, it's a holy longing to embrace God with your life. And those holy longings never go away if you're truly born again. Because they are authored by the Holy Spirit, the life of Christ, of the Spirit within you. And that is why you're willing. Abba Father says, I am willing. I want your life, not the one that I had on my own. Charles Wesley put it this way. He said, all my requests are lost in one. Father, thy will be done. That is effectively the cry of Abba Father. Father, your will be done, not mine. My life now is to be consumed with you and your plan, your will, your way. We are willing. If you're not willing, deep in your heart, then you need to question whether you know God or not because every true child of God has the cry of Abba Father. If you don't know him, if you're not willing Ask God to make you willing so that you can come and partake of this life that he has to give you. We are willing and we are able. We are able because God called us. You see, it says here, But he who has called you, as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. God's calling is God's enabling. Because he called, and he calls me to be holy. As he is holy, he is the one that will give me the power to do it. And you know where the power comes from? From within. Power comes from within, from a relationship with God, personal relationship. The power to live a holy life comes not from the fear of a God who's going to smash you if you don't. 
The power to live a holy life comes from a life that's been so warmed by his love, that's so exercised in being one with him, that you want to be like him, you want to be as near to him as you can. That's the secret of true obedience. Andrew Murray put it this way, he said, The secret of true obedience is the clear and close personal relationship to God. All our attempts after full obedience will be failures unless we get access to his abiding fellowship. It is God's holy presence consciously abiding with us that keeps us from disobeying him. I must consciously include the Lord in every thought, activity, and conversation until the habit of fellowshipping with him is firmly established. That's what Andrew Murray says. He's right. He wrote a phenomenal book on obedience. You should get in and read it sometime. But what he is saying here is that it's not a cold thing. It's not a grievous thing. It's something that flows from the warmest part of your life, your heart and fellowship with God. As he who called you is holy, you be holy. It is his life in you that will enable you to be holy. You know, as I contemplate this and Christ interceding for me on the right hand of God, as I contemplate the fact that at the end of my life, filled with failures and victories, he's going to receive me in full grace. And as I contemplate millions, perhaps billions of angels, ministers sent forth to me as an heir of salvation, I have begun, I'm only just beginning to realize this, that all of heaven, all of heaven is waiting, just waiting for one person who is willing to discover the will of God and then will go on to do it. Heaven is waiting for you today. All of heaven is waiting to help you be holy as he is holy. So the preparation for holiness, the obedience of holiness. Finally, the reason, just quickly, very simply, but perhaps the most profound of all. The reason for holiness is simply this, to live for the glory of God. Look at 1 Peter 1.16. Here it is, because. Why? Why all of this? Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. That comes from Leviticus. I don't know if you've ever read through Leviticus and looked for this. How many times God says, I am the Lord your God. And throughout the Old Testament, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. You're mine. You belong to me. I want to bless you. I want to make you free. I am the Lord your God. But on the other hand, you're mine. You reflect me. You're identified with my name. Be holy as I am holy. For I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And what is holiness? It's Christ-likeness. It's becoming like Him from living near to Him. The greatest thing in my life I can ever achieve is to be like him. There could be never any more possible, higher tribute, comment, compliment someone could give you than to say this or say it about you. She is Christ-like. He is Christ-like. That's the end of holiness. And it is all for this, for the glory of God. There is no greater purpose in living than that. And you know what happens when you have real holiness? Think about this. Real holiness will be holy. A real holy man will be holy when he's with holy people. And a real holy man or a real holy woman will be holy when he or she is with unholy people as well. That is real holiness. In the end, you realize this. They called them Christians at Antioch. In the book of Acts, 
because they were so much like Christ. Christian means Christ bearer. You bear the name of your Christ. As we go from this place today, let us remember this. I, as a Christian, bear the name of my holy Christ. Therefore, he asks me, giving me the grace and the power to be holy as he is holy and to know that when I'm not and I fail yet trying, there will be grace to cover me now and there will be grace when I finish because he loves me so much. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this great grace that is ours in Christ. We see here, Lord, a life of direction, a life of purpose, a life of passion, a life of freedom, a comforted life, productive life, a graced life. Father, by your Spirit, may we be holy as you are holy, and we will give you all the glory. For that is why we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.